Good morning. This is Sister Lisa coming to you from the Ill, the Edwin Elder Library, and today we're going to be doing Day 20. Chapter 20 out of Meeting God in Holy Places by F. Lagarde Smith, illustrated by Glenda Rowe. Glenda Ray. Okay. Chapter 20. I will propitiate your memory through all generations. Psalms 45, 17. Passover. Storytelling. At precisely 6.24 p.m., the ram's horn was blown and the candles were lit. It was Passover in Jerusalem, fittingly for a pilgrim feast. The guests for the cedar meal were from all over the globe. Germany, Holland, Latvia, Kenya, Finland, Ukraine, South Africa, Korea, the United States, and of course, Israel. Our very presence seemed to confirm the words which would be spoken during the cedar. Next year in Jerusalem, for us, next year had come, but this was not to be a typical cedar meal. This particular group of Jews who had gathered to celebrate the Passover for Pishat in Hebrew were not simply Jews, but Masonic Jews. If for Jews, P-E-S-A-C-H is a celebration of the coming out of Egypt. For Masonic Jews, it is also the celebration of the coming of the Paschal Lamb, Jesus the Messiah. For these believers, Piash was a double remembrance, not only of deliverance from slavery, but of deliverance from sin. Hence the S-E-D-E-R, cedar mill, on the first night of the Passover would be observed with all the ritual and tradition with which it had been imbued over the centuries, yet celebrated in light of the good news of the Messiah's appearance. And what a meal it was, not so much the food, but the ceremony which combined all the best elements of a worship service a party, a classroom lesson, and a holiday homecoming. In prayer book fashion, we followed the words in the H-A-G-G-A-D-A, Haggadah, or Haggadah, which led us through the various recitation, prayers, songs, and rituals for the evening. The centerpiece of the cedar was the matzah, M-A-T-Z-A, or unleavened bread, the same bread eaten by the children of Israel on their flight from Egypt. So at various times, we broke the matzah, hid the matzah, and ate the matzah. We also drank not just one or two, but four cups of either wine or grape juice. For Christians, the, this parallels with the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, Christ's body, Christ's blood. There were also the bitter herbs, parsley or celery leaves dipped in salt water, a reminder of the suffering of Jews. For not one persecutor only has risen to destroy us, but in every generation there are those who rise to destroy us. And there were also the sandwich made of matzah and sweet compote of apples, dates, bananas, raisins, almonds, walnuts, and cinnamon. There is always both bitter and sweet. God never gives a harsh judgment without a message of consolation. For those of us who are spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham, the Messiah's bitter crucifixion is our sweet salvation. The symbolic egg may have been my personal favorite. The Jews are like a boiled egg. Joseph, our host, told us through a rice smile, Worn as the badge of pride, the longer you boil them, the harder they get. The actual meal itself, including matzah ball soup, lamb, potatoes, carrots, and, and salad, was for my taste somewhat anticlimactic, or maybe I was just remembering my small part in its preparation, rinsing the salt out of the lamb after it had been rubbed in to help remove the blood from the flesh. It wasn't a pretty sight, but the final product was tasty enough and filling. Throughout the Passover cedar, 
The focus was always on the children. Indeed, they were the object of the whole exercise and have been from the very first Passover. Remember what Moses had told the Israelites? When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe the ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Traditionally then, the youngest child at the cedar asked the four questions. On all the other nights, we may eat either hamaz or matzah. Why on this night only matzah? On all the other nights, we eat other kinds of herbs. Why on this night bitter herbs? On all other nights, we do not even dip the herbs once. Why on this night do we dip twice? On all other nights, we eat either sitting or reclining. Why on this night do we all recline? The remainder of the Haggadah is essentially the answer to those questions. Centering on the story of the Exodus, which has symbolized the history of the Jews ever since then. For Jewish children, especially the Haggadah, is a retelling of the story, a transmission of tradition, and an indoctrination into the Jewish soul. From start to finish, the Haggadah is aimed at achieving one result. In every single generation, it is a man's duty to think of himself as one of those who come out of Egypt. If it was an important message, it was also a marathon message, lasting some four hours. By the end of the evening, I detected more than one nodding head among the older adults. So just imagine the restlessness of the younger children. Given their typically short attention spans, one senses that there, there was method in the madness of hiding a piece of the matzah at the beginning of the cedar. When the cedar is concluded, the child who finds the missing matzah is rewarded by being give, given whatever he or she asks, within reason, of course. For most of the children, then, the thought of such a generous reward is more than adequate incentive to stay awake and stay tuned. As a further reward for all the children, there was a number of songs which were sung just for their benefit. One song entitled, Who Knows One, was reminiscent of the 12 days of Christmas with its rep repetitious add-on lyrics. God is one. The tablets of the covenant are two. The patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are three, and so forth, down to the 13 attributes of God. That song reminded me of the many little children's songs I was taught in Sunday school, and even more so during the week of Vacation Bible School each summer. The songs were both fun and action-filled, energetically setting out the words, acting out the words. We marched in the Lord's army, hurled stones at Goliath, rocked the baby Jesus, and clapped when the foolish man's house fell flat. Before we could even memorize book, chapter, and verse, we were thoroughly familiar with stories of the Bible. I love that part of my heritage. I love sharing that part of my heritage. Isn't that what another little camp song encourages us to do? Pass it on. What's made to be fun for the children turns out to be not just storytelling, but serious theology at a level that children can understand. There is one God. There were tablets of the covenant. There were three patriarchs, four matriarchs, five books of the Torah, and so on. When it comes to learning, children are never too young, nor are they ever more inquisitive. Like Moses before him, Joshua counted on the natural curiosity of little children to appropriate the story of Israel's miraculous history. When the Israelites crossed into the Promised Land, Joshua instructed the men of Israel to take 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan River and to erect them as a memorial of their crossing. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Whether stacks of stones or Passover cedars or the ultimate meaning of life, each succeeding generation must ask all the same questions for itself. If the two-year-old's incessant why can drive a person to distraction, nevertheless, it is God's way of keeping his message alive from generation to generation. 
With all the insistence that a two-year-old can muster, the demand is universal and timeless. Tell me the story. What is the mystery of life? As the Pesach, Pesach, P-E-S-A-C-H, celebration reminds me, the questioning process presupposes that the child is observing something which prompts the question. For Jewish children, it may be questions about the cedar mill or in centuries past about the pile of 12 stones by the Jordan River. In our own context, we must be doing something right when a child's mind intuitionally asks, why is one day of the week different from all the others? Or at church, why are they passing around the bread and wine? And why isn't that person being dunked in the water? On the way, on the home front, perhaps, is why do my parents keep reading that one particular book every day? Or why do we always pray at bedtime? As any parent knows, these simple acts never go unnoticed by children. It's how they learn, how they ultimately live, and what they themselves will eventually bequeath to their own children, even to the children yet to be born. The incredible prospect of that far extended future intrigues me to no end. Generations from now, what will they believe? How will they live? And of immediate importance, what influences am I having right now over people I will never know in decades and centuries to come? A good man, says the proverb, leaves an inheritance for his children's children. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? What inheritance am I leaving for generations yet unborn? Today I reread, or today I reread, some familiar words from the pen of the prophet Joel, writing more than 28 centuries ago. Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What an irony, I thought. Joel could have never guessed that all these centuries later I would be listening to what he had to say and still be prompted by it. It simply proves the point. Neither the story nor its telling ever ends, unless I, of course, I myself stop the telling. So when little ones in my life beg to read just one more story, may God give me the patience to read it. May God also give me the wisdom to know that they are listening attentively to every other story I share in their presence, whether I have an open book before me or not. In the eyes of precious little ones, every moment is a story, every life a seether. Well, you know, that's how my husband and I, we felt, you know, we wanted to train up our children in the way they should go. And when they're old, they will not depart from it. And to our grandchildren, teach it to them. You know, um, my husband, he told my grandson, he said, when we pray, we talk to God. When we read the Bible, God talks to us. And he had um, my grandson repeat that. And all my grandchildren love that song. Every praise is to our God. God, my Savior, God, my healer, God, my deliverer. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And it's just so precious that our children and our grandchildren love the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, it's it's just one of those things that's the most important. It's the reason. It's the driving force behind everything I do. Everything I do, I want it to be pleasing before the Lord and a legacy, a heritage for my children and my children's children. You know, the Proverbs 31 woman, you know, her children rose up and called her blessed. Her husband was known in the gates. You know, that's everything we do. Let's do it to the glory of God. Let's meet God in holy places. Let's point others to the cross. Jesus is coming soon. Thank you. Love you. Bye-bye.